You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. David Laser is a multi-award winning journalist. For over 40 years, he's written for leading titles in Australia, North America, Middle East, Europe and Asia. Also author of seven books, his gender relations treaties, Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing, is widely regarded as a landmark text in the complex and sensitive Me Too debate. So David, welcome to Five My Life. Thanks very much, Nigel. Now, I have to uh, read you an email from one of my listeners before we get into your choices, mate, because uh, it will explain why this is happening. So I've got in front of me an email from a gentleman who I've never met. Um, I, I don't know him. We've never exchanged uh, any emails or anything until uh, he sent me an email last year saying, Hi, Nigel. Can I be so bold as to recommend a book to you? When my eldest daughter was in her late teens, she bought me the book Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing by David Laser. I read it every few years. I think it should be mandatory reading for every Australian male, if not every male on the planet. He's also my answer to question six. Now, question six is when I ask my guests who else they'd they'd like to hear on Five of My Life. So on Five of My Life, we have a, a lovely, growing, engaged audience that I take really Seriously. So this guy, Nicholas Shorter, who, who I don't know, I mean, I now, I now do a little bit because I emailed back to him. Um, uh, if someone writes to me and says that, and there are five of my life listener, I go, well, well, yeah, I will. So I went out and got it and I read it and it's brilliant. And I'm sure you know that you must have had oodles of responses. And then I thought, well, hold on, maybe I should get him on. So that's, that's why this is happening. Well, that's very nice to know. Thank you, Mr. Shorter. Yeah, thank you, Nicholas. Okay, now on uh, your choices, we are going through a, a journey through the 19th, 20th and 21st century. Ooh, uh, sometimes people pick uh, choices all from 1993. You go, yeah, yeah, okay. So you, that was your best year. So you, you've gone over the centuries. Uh, and we always start with the film. Uh, and your film is the 1983 ensemble star vehicle classic, The Big Chill. Could you uh, tell us why you've chosen that on Five of My Life? Well, I s- I've seen it nine times. Right? Now, so, do you, kn- so do you that- know it's nine or is that an approximation? That's an approximation. <laughs> right. It's at least nine times. I mean, it's pure nostalgia on my part. I mean, I saw that film, I think it came out in the early 80s and I was around 27. And basically it's the story of college kids who have gone their own way after college and then they've come back together for a funeral and they've kind of been part of the 60s counterculture and you know they were all living together and shagging each other and then they went off and got married and then they came back for a weekend and you've got 
a young Kevin Klein, a young Jeff Goldblum, a young William Hurt, a young Glenn Close. I mean, all of these incredible actors. And the film opens with Marvin Gaye's Heard It Through the Grapevine. It's the most incredible soundtrack. It's fantastic dialogue. And it just appealed to all those sensibilities in me which kind of, yeah, which are kind of slightly nostalgic for that time in my life when I was growing up with my my clan and, you know, we travelled together and we did things together and we changed, you know, exchanged partners, you know, after, you know, a sort of, with all the courtesies intact, I might add. <laughs> um, and that was a, a sort of celebratory time in our lives. And then we all went off and got married or, you know, had partners, had children. And so that film, the the, 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 the score to that film the acting in that film, the dialogue in that film. I just, I just love it. And it's a little cheesy now when you look at it in, in hindsight. It's a little dated, but I still love it. So are you still in touch with your uni friends, the same, the same gang? Some of them. Right. Yeah, and this, these were actually friends, a couple of them from school, a couple of them I met when I was 15, 16. But we were all part of this, this group of people who... You know, we loved the same music. You know, we we got stoned together. We took mushrooms together. We, you know, went to Byron Bay together. And we were part of this, you know, sort of thumbing our nose at the establishment and being, you know, privileged countercultural hippies. Privileged counterculture. I love it. There's a wonderful scene in the film. I mean, the film is, is fabulous. I, I agree. It's a little bit dated now. You, you've, you've got to view it through the eyes of... of you know, when it was made. But the scene where whoever the guy is um, gets brought back by the cops. And then I, I, I love Kevin Klein, but Kevin Klein uh, um, sort of sweet talks the cops out of out of doing a proper arrest. Yeah, William um, Hurt is brought back that's by it. the cops. Yeah. And then Hurt gives Klein a serve saying, oh God, you've sold out man, blah, blah, blah. But then the little rant that Klein does back to Hurt, I think is inspired writing yeah i mean he basically he says listen i'm dug in here yeah this is my life and uh he'd made something you know he, in the film he's married to glenn the glenn close character and he's an establishment figure and he's made a shitload of money and hurt is still this kind of i mean he's had his ball shot out in vietnam <laughs> you know he, he you know he's you know he's kind of drug-fueled and angry and he it's an amazing performance by William Hurt. Yeah. And he basically thinks that his mate has sold out and his mate who he loves has sold out. So there's all of those tensions uh, in the film as well about, you know, who stayed the course and who didn't. So if, if you had to, and, and hopefully they won't be offended depending on your answer, if you had to uh, position yourself amongst your uni mates, are you the successful one or are you the dropout or are you just joe blow pretty well all of my mates um from uni and from those early days we've had all various kind of measures of success and losses and triumphs i mean i i wouldn't distinguish one from the other really so uh, one of the things that kate my wife and i uh used to do when we lived in england i've been here now 21 years um uh, it's every new year we go away with with the big chill mates the mates from from our uni and it would be hilarious and exactly as you say we'd start doing it single and then someone would you know be partnered then someone would be holy moly married and then god forbid someone turns up with a baby and it's just like an incredible thing but then 
you know, we emigrate permanently, happily, uh, but we have started to do them again. With your we, old mates from yeah, England. Yeah, when we go back over to, uh, over to England or, or Europe. And it is just incredible. You can't, you can't make up having met someone in 1981. Yeah, well, see, that's, that's the thing for you. I mean, you know, you, in a way, for anyone who leaves their country, they're kind of permanently in exile. And everyone that they meet is it's it's a it's a fresh start. Whereas your old friends, um, you just take up where you left off. Yeah. But the problem with that sometimes is that you f- you know you're freeze framed or you're frozen. Ah yes. In, in a in a particular place, and you can't escape it. You can't grow. You can't evolve. You can't become whatever you thought you might become or had become, because your mates have pegged you at the time that they met you. That's uh, that's such an interesting comment I see, especially in some of the more idiotic uh, upper class part of UK. You get someone who you'd meet them now, and they're I don't know a fifty five year old, extraordinarily um, uh, senior, wealthy, uh, I don't know, banker or politician, and their mate turns up and goes, you know, hello, spanker. Because, you know, he's still got <laughs> the nickname that, you know, he was given at Eton when he was eight or whatever. See, I, I was, <laughs> only, the to- only the Tories would come up with a, with a term like, hello, spanker. <laughs> um, so uh, marriage, you talk about, uh, was it ABBA that swapped partners? Oh, it was absolutely fantastic. As in, like, within a foursome, they, they did every, every permutation. Um, so how many times round? Uh, is- I've only been married once. Right. And uh, to the mother of my children. And that was uh, a 23-year marriage and we're still friends. And, um, yeah, we had uh, many, many great years together. And, and did you meet at uni? Or? No, we met when we were 14 at school. Oh, mate, that's lovely. Okay. Yeah, she was on the, the ferry to Hunters Hill and I was on the ferry to Neutral Bay and we... We met each other through the kind of, you know, the petition between the f- number four and number five ferry. And, um, yeah, and then I think we kissed and cuddled at a garage party when we were 14. And uh, Not to the Commodores. That's what, that was my – we always used to wait for the slow dance at the end of the disco. You know, I think it was to – actually, no, it was to Locomotive Breath or something. <laughs> <laughs> Jethro Tull. I don't know what it was. It was, it was a fast dance. and um, But then it became a slow dance. And, and then we met again – 15, 16 years later when I was um, I was working on the Australian newspaper at that time and uh, she was working as an urban planner and then we met in a little vegetarian takeaway shop in in Paddington and and then it, it resumed from the time when we were 14. Oh. Yeah. And, and uh, you've got... Two daughters, oh, yeah. Fact. One daughter living in New York, one daughter living in Sydney. So we're going to go uh, for your second choice uh, back in time to the 19th century. And I have a bone to pick with you, mate, because when I was telling everyone that you uh, have picked Les Mis, uh, Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's uh, amazing book, uh, I hadn't, it hadn't arrived yet. I, whenever my guests choose the book, I immediately order it on Book Depository, and then I haven't got to worry about it because it just appears, and when it appears, I start reading. And this doorstop arrived <laughs> 1330 pages mm. and so i thought well screw you david laser um it's a masterpiece i i, I actually think i i 
think it's changed me as a human being. I mean, I'm not joking. I, the first 50 pages about the lovely Bishop, Bishop Morel, I thought, this is uh, astonishing. And it never let up. So uh, initially, I was going to tell you, oi, mate, choose a smaller book. Now I'm going, thank you for choosing Les Miserables, uh, 1862, Victor Hugo. Uh, tell us why you did. Well, I wanted you to sing for your supper. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean it's interesting because you know you are um, you have a theological background, and so I would imagine not that I picked it for this reason, of course, um, that you would have found some very very interesting insights there into into the church, into the into the clerics, and um, I I had first gone to France when I was twenty, and I had fallen in love with with Paris. Um, but I was, you know, in, in a sort of callow youth kind of way. I didn't know why. It's just I found it the most romantic city I'd been in, and I still do. But Hugo, Hugo's book, I just have to give you the context for it because the mother of my children, um, my former wife, we, uh, her name is Marin, and we went to a Greek island when she was pregnant with our first daughter, Jordan. And we took a suitcase each, but we also took a third suitcase full of the classics. Uh, wow, okay. Because we thought if there's ever going to be a time in our lives where we might read the classics like Tolstoy or yeah. Hugo and Dostoevsky, whatever, it'll be now. And because we we'd, we'd taken a sabbatical. And so we took a, a suitcase full of all of these books, War and Peace and Crime and Punishment and um, Flaubert's Madame Bovary and whatever. But the one we both loved... And we lived, in a, we lived in a little cottage on the side of a hill. Only a goat shepherd, you know, was um, the closest person to us. And uh, we read Les Miserables. Um, and that's 34 years ago. So, like, I have not read it since. But I remember just being sideswiped by the elegance of it, the sweep of it, the, the depth of it in terms of understanding 19th century France and the French Revolution and the ways in which... I mean, th this is the best book one could ever read about human misery, insights into social justice and human misery and the wretchedness of people's lives, wherever you happen to live. And it, wasn't, it was set in France, um, but it could apply to any country. And... Uh, the description of the sewers of Paris is one of the most extraordinary sections of the book. I, I still remember just being completely bowled over by that. You lift the lid of Paris and then you look down and you see the, the network of sewers. Just incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, Victor Hugo is like, I, I mean, I think he might arguably be the greatest figure in French history. I mean, when he died in 1862... I think there were more than two million people who lined the streets of Paris for his funeral and his, uh, the carrying of his body to the Pantheon. Um, and he was a politician and an elder statesman and he'd been in exile for 15 years for opposing Napoleon III. And he wrote about ending slavery. He wrote about universal suffrage. He wrote about the rights of the child and the rights of women. You know, he was as significant as Voltaire, and I just found the book. I, I mean, I've never seen the musical, I've never seen the the, the movie, um, I've never heard the radio show about Les Mis. I mean, it's become part of the popular culture. I just, but thirty four years ago, that book, 
landed in my heart and um, I've never forgotten it. It absolutely floored me. Um, so Victor Hugo, that there's a uh, Vietnamese religion, I'll, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, so deep apologies, uh, Cao Daism, and one of their prophets is Victor Hugo. Is that right? <laughs> Absolutely. So it's, it was established in 1922, and and they chose, alongside Mohammed and Jesus, Victor Hugo. They, they have incredibly colourful temples. But anyway, just, just to prove your mm. point about how what an amazing man Victor was. And Victor Hugo avenues all over France. Yeah. Probably in, practic- in practically every major city and regional centre in France, there is a Victor Hugo, avenue to Victor Hugo. It's interesting you saying you haven't um, seen the musical or the, or the film, because I, I've done it the other way round. And I wasn't, you know, a big fan. It's a, it's a nice, you know, story and Valjean and all that stuff. Is the book is entirely different to the musical and the film because the book does the digressions. So over a quarter of the book are him talking about the Battle of Waterloo or the Paris sewers or the nature of evil or, or, or convents or the role of women or, or socialism nothing to do with the plot it takes 15 chapters for each, right. It, right whereas the film i mean you know this from your career that the, the the you know the hollywood producer or the musical producer would say right what's the plot and you go mm. but the plot isn't I mean, although it's amazing but the plot isn't les mis les mis is the other stuff another none of the other stuff is in the bloody film well because of course it isn't it's all about javert and valjean so that's uh, right but that's that's also part of its genius because while it is this kind of meditation on good and evil and morality and, um, you know, the character of a society, it's, it's also a thriller. Yes. It's also a, a chase. It's, it's uh, Jean Valjean on the run. And, you know, it's this story about redemption and forgiveness and, you know, yeah. So he himself, Victor said, uh, I forget the full quote, but it's something like, wherever, wherever man is miserable or hopeless, wherever woman sells her body for a loaf of bread... Uh, Les Miserables knocks at the door and says, open up, I'm here for you. Mm. It's an incredibly optimistic, welcoming book, despite it all. It, it's a plea for humanity. I think the Guardian on the copy that I had said, the humanist masterpiece. And you go, yeah, I, I reckon it is, which, which makes me want to ask you, uh, mate, uh, your political journey. The whole book is a progress from evil to good, from injustice to justice. And, mm. and I... I it genuinely had an effect on me. It made me seriously examine, do I make enough effort? Mm. You, know, you, know, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I try very hard to be a good dad and husband and all those things, and I don't break the law and I pay my taxes, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I, you know, put that book down and go, do I make enough effort for you know, <laughs> the world? So uh, I'm going to turn it on to you. Uh, what is your political journey well i think they're two sorry if i may say they're two different questions you know like do i make enough effort have i tried to change the dial move the dial on social political issues that's one thing and another thing would be you know where are my politics and and i'm more interested in the former (laughs) yeah yeah good um because i think it's more interesting and you know it's hard to kind of work out what shapes you because so many factors go into shaping who we are but now talking to you and thinking well okay so Les Mis was a book that landed in my life just as I was about to become a father and it was a book about social justice and I'd always cared about social justice and 
partly because I'd come from a fairly privileged background. It was, it was for me, it was my way of balancing the ledger or expiating my own guilt about being privileged or, <laughs> you know. And, and, of course, I went into a profession that um, I, f- I felt like it was one where I, I wanted to try and change the world. I mean, I, I was that naive. You know, and I was my first job. I was asked, "Why do you, why do I want to be a journalist?" and and I said, "Well, you know, I want to make a difference." No, that's not why you're here. And I, I said, "Well, um, you know, because I I want to I want to improve." You know, he said, "No, no, no that's not why you're here. This is a news corporation, of, of <laughs> course." He said, "You're here, mate, to entertain. That's what journalists do. We're in, we're in the inter- entertainment business. You're too ide- idealistic for this kind of work." And that's what I got for the first few years in journalism. But I, I was always drawn to the social justice stories. And if I look back on the, some of the stories I've done, you know, around asylum seekers or around fracking or around the Bali bombing or um, some of the profiles I've done, I think that there's some kind of moral flavour to or ethical flavour to it. How should we act? What should we do? You know, those old Socratic questions of what makes for a better society. And that sounds, you know, too holier, too holier than thou, but it is trying to work out what it is. I mean, I try and work out what it is I feel and think about something through the act of writing about it and researching the subject. And so... I don't know whether I've moved the dial on anything. I mean, Pauline Hanson's still in Parliament. Alan Jones has had a major voice until recently. You know, p- both people I've talked about. We've still got asylum seekers locked up. We're still fracking. You know, climate change is still with us more than ever. So the things that I've tried to address as a journalist, you know, you'd say, well, it's been abject failures. I mean, those, you know, it's still happening. But you know, I think, I think it's about. Um, the attempt rather than the result and despite uh, i mean you know the world is a it's like an oil tanker it takes a a long long time to to turn i i I happen to be a long-range optimist so bear with me here i i I feel in the main if you take a, a long arc of justice so you compare a seventh century french peasant to a 2023 working class Toulouse factory worker, they've in the main got better health, education, life expectancy. You go, bloody hell, mate. Well, that's, that's 900 years. We can't wait that long. But, but I think in the main, the human species, you know, with, with lots of roadblocks and whatever else, gets round to sorting shit out. Are you are you a long range optimist, or do you think they're going to hell in a handbasket? Yeah, I've heard you say that in other interviews that you've done. You seem with your you have an infectious enthusiasm, and you're a very ebullient man, and I love that optimism. Do I share it? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not. Sure. I mean, you know, I do think on one level that the what is the the arc of the universe does, mm. does bend towards justice, and we do have universal human rights. And we do have a collective – we have ended slavery. We do have democratic systems. We do have levels of affluence that we've never seen before in human history. And for all of the misogyny that exists in the world, we, you know, women's rights are more advanced than they've been, you know, ever. Well, except unless we go back to sort of um, the Neolithic period – 
and hunter-gatherer societies, some hunter-gatherer societies. But so, yes, on one level, yes. On another level, um, we've cooked the planet and there is species extinction at a rate that is just truly staggering. And there are extreme weather events happening right now, as we know, everywhere. Uh, look at California, look at Pakistan last month or the month before, and we have a pandemic. And we have a challenge to the liberal post-World War II order that is placing fascism squarely, you know, back in the mainframe. And we have disparities of wealth and we have ice caps melting. So, you know, I could build an argument that is a counter to yours, um, which is incredibly bleak and terrifying. And I think millions of people are living with that terror and the grief of what's happening to nature. And as nature, as the planet hurts, we register that hurt in our bodies. And I think people are hurting everywhere. So having said that, I try to remain, as Christiana Figueres, you know, the woman who led the Paris climate talks, stubbornly optimistic. It's a... It's a... Um, it's not optimism for the sake of it. It's, it's almost like I'm willing myself to be optimistic. I, I, it's fascinating listening to you, David, because every now and then I, I get what I call a Thelma and Louise moment. So, so you know, <laughs> let's when, not jump off that cliff together. Well, well no, but but, it, but it, this is so. In a way, my attitude might stem from species arrogance, where well, it's 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 not an option that we're actually going to go poof, and then for the next two trillion years we don't exist. You go, no, no, it's absolutely an option. It's completely an option that we are like Theron and Louise in the car heading towards the cliff. We're drinking whiskey, smoking joints, and we're laughing our heads off as we head to extinction. It's a, it, it, one of the options, which it sort of hasn't been in the 8th century or the 7th century because we didn't have the power, and the universe won't mind, is Earth just poof. You know, there is no more. You know, we literally are wiped out uh, completely. Well, I think Earth will still be here. Uh, yeah, uh, but not, not us on it. But we may, we may render it uninhabitable. I mean, we've got about five to seven years to turn climate change around. And then... I mean, you've seen the footage from California. The sides of mountains and roads just being swept away. I mean, the most catastrophic floods in Californian history after having had the most catastrophic fires in Californian history. And we've had those kinds of fires in 2019-20. We are on a hiding to nothing if we don't do something in the next seven years. And I just, you know, this is where I become rather than a so-called objective journalist. I become a sort of an activist journalist. This is where I, I don't have time to, to tolerate the bullshit of, of climate deniers, yeah. climate change deniers. I mean, they're not morally equal. You know, it's like, why would you spend your time talking to Nazis when you could talk to... Well, it's, it's good to understand the thinking of the, of the Nazi regime, but... They're not morally equal to the victims of the Holocaust or the victims of the Nazi regime. So don't give the same airtime to climate change denialists as you do to 99% of the climate scientists yeah. who also are terrified about what we've, what we've done to the planet. So I think we've, we've got to move rapidly and, uh, and put the sword to the fossil fuel industry as quickly as we can. And, of course, it's more complicated than 
you know, we would want it to be, but, uh, you know, and then, and then there is just equal and opposite to that are all the random acts of kindness and love and charity and goodness that people display every single day. I mean, that's happening at the same time as we are seeing this great menace to the, to the planet that we're on. So that is a great link to change the tone slightly and go to your third choice, David. We are going hurtling into the 21st century. Long may it last, hopefully. Uh, you've chosen Hallelujah. Now, uh, I'm conflicted by this choice. Uh, Leonard Conan's 1984 classic that has been covered, I mean, probably half a million times, but over 300 times, you know, published, released, proper there's, there's it's, it's almost as many times as yesterday the most covered song mm. in the world and you've chosen the kd lang version from hymns of the 49th parallel uh, album it's a fantastic version it's a golden, it's a broken hallelujah. Hallelujah. Uh, not as as popular as jeff hallelujah. buckley's but it is a wonderful wonderful version tell us about why you have chosen that well tell me first why you're conflicted because i've just had the snot beaten out of it <laughs> it's too good so, so have you heard the bob dylan version well I, hilarious yeah, yeah yeah i have heard the bob i just dylan it's, it's like robbie williams angels or or stairway to heaven or something in my little life where you go it's so good and so brilliant I mean, even at our school fair you know, yeah. the bloke sitting there, he's either going to play Wonderwall or he's going to play fucking Hallelujah. Okay. Not very well. So okay. I love it, but it's been done to death. So you're you're abusing my choice, basically. I am, you, which yeah. I say I don't do on Five My Life. So no, I, I, mean, I, I, I need to put my manners I, back in. I think it's really intemperate of you, <laughs> Look, I love the song. I love the lyrics. I love the melody. I love the, you know, the minor fall to the major lift. I love the story of the song. I love Leonard Cohen. And, you know, of course, it, this song has been absolutely... What, did you, what was your term? Uh, well, the, it has had the snot beaten out of it. Right, okay. <laughs> the, yeah, uh, there's possibly a spanker in there as well. <laughs> but let's just think about this for a second. You know, this is a song that took se seven years to write. Uh, it is a song that is both sacred and profane. It is a song that it has been said of that it is all about Leonard Cohen's search for the mystery of the universe and God, whatever that might mean. And he was an endless searcher, spiritual searcher. And also about the woman that he slept with the night before last. You know, so there's a holiness and horniness to this, this song. And it was rejected by his record label. In 1984, it was on the album Various Positions and, you know, the head of Columbia Records said, you know, Leonard, you know, we know you're great. We just don't know whether you're any good. <laughs> and so the song kind of just disappeared. Dylan heard it and played it live. Then John Cale from Velvet yes. Under Underground yeah. Fabulous. gave it his own kind of touch and it was very spare and he changed the lyrics. Leonard Cohen wrote 150 verses. I mean, no one ever actually really knows what the verses to this song are. So John Cale did this beautiful version. 
and asked Leonard Cohen for the lyrics and Leonard Cohen sent him 15 pages of notes. And, uh, and then Jeff Buckley got hold of it and turned it into an, another version, which was Sublime. And it's on the only album that Jeff Buckley, only completed album that he ever did, Grace. And Jeff Buckley inspired people like Tom York and Chris Martin. And, and then Shrek brought it into the public consciousness with John Cale's version in the film and Rufus Wainwright's version on the album. And what I like about it is that, you know, I mean, Leonard Cohen said about, you know, Hallelujah, which was, it, it, it does mean praise, praise to the Lord or praise be God or, and that you can raise a fist to the world or you can say Hallelujah. And people have been saying Hallelujah for thousands of years. And he brought the term Hallelujah down from the celestial heights into the, you know, sort of onto secular ground where, People started singing this song all over the world, as you say, and it has been done to death, right? In a, I mean, if I hear another version on Idol or The Voice or whatever, I mean, I'll, I'll garrot someone. I, I, I agree with you. But it, 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 it's, that has happened for a reason. Yeah. There are very few songs that have entered the collective consciousness of the world where you could sing it at a funeral or at a wedding yeah. or at a moment of grace And also, I don't know what the song's about. Can you imagine being the woman? Can you imagine being the woman who uh, half inspired it? I mean, presumably she knows. She must be walking around going, wow, Leonard kind of wrote that song, uh, you know, the night after we got together. But, you know, I think it might have been partly about Bathsheba, you know. Well, well, this is what I want to ask you. So Cohen, Canadian and Jewish, and unless I've got my research grievously wrong uh, the same could be said of yourself born in born in montreal where leonard cohen's from yeah and, and maybe not a practicing but are you of the jewish faith or jewish heritage or well, yeah jewish heritage. jewish heritage yeah and and do either of those two things inform you day to day as you're walking around or is it just a historical note oh uh, well the the canadian thing is just an accident of birth you know right. my, my parents happened to be there and i was born in you know I, they lived in montreal for a few years and that's where i was born and my sister was born I mean, I have been to Montreal once and I, I don't know it, but I'd love to kind of get to know it better. But I, I feel this connection to Montreal and to Jewish Montreal because of my love for Leonard Cohen. Right. Because okay. I discovered Leonard Cohen as an 11-year-old in 1967 when his first album came out. And, you know, he was then 30 or something yeah. by that stage. He was Canada's most famous poet. But then he became a songwriter and that first album, Songs of Leonard Cohen, with Suzanne on it and Sisters of Mercy and The Stranger Song and other songs like that, I just absolutely fell in love with, with that. The Jewish, I mean, and he came from a long line of rabbis and Talmudic scholars and people in the, in the clothing industry, the schmutter business, and I kind of related to that. As a, I, do I feel Jewish? I feel Jewish culturally. I don't feel... Jewish religiously, um, and I don't certainly don't feel Jewish politically in the sense of this sort of unambiguous support for Israel. But that we might come to that because that might go to another one of the five, five uh, choices. Yes, I think know. maybe your fifth choice. Well, let, let's move on to your fourth choice. And although I know where this 
place is. Uh, many of our listeners might not. You've chosen Bondi Icebergs. Before you tell us why you've chosen it on Five My Life, David, could you describe it? <laughs> well, it's just this kind of concrete pile on the on the edge of the uh, Pacific. Bondi Icebergs is a it's a club, it's a gym, it's a pool, fifty meter pool, it's a cafe, it's kind of a a juji uh, restaurant at the top, which has these glorious views of the ocean, and it has this more kind of like RSL uh, counter lunch restaurant below it, and then there's the gym and the cafe and the pool, and it just sits on the rocks there at the south end of Bondi, and you know I wanted to say to you. Uh, in this choice, you know, and of course, all these choices took ages to come to. <laughs> I wanted to give you something exotic. Actually, really, when I think about it, it's the place I go nearly every day. It's where I ground myself. I I go to the gym. I, I do some yoga on the platform there overlooking the sea. Uh, I swim laps. I have a coffee and it's, it's a fantastic cafe. And um, I, I've met people there. And, you know, whatever community is to one i feel it i feel i feel the social capital of of that place because over the last five six seven years i've come to have a community there and it's right on the edge of the pacific and i feel like it grounds my day and i i love the people who are there i love the the guy who runs the gym you know he's a farmer from king Arroy. you know it's, it's just a place where everybody's welcome and i lived in my daughters grew up in byron bay uh, for much of their childhood and that was the first place that I ever really came to understand the idea of community. I lived there for 12 years and what it means to have all those wonderful threads that people in regional Australia understand often so much more than us in the city. When I left Byron I I missed that and I've you know not replicated it but I've got something perhaps a kind of pale facsimile of that in um, at Bondi Icebergs. There's something that we forget at our peril, and that's exactly what you have just been talking about, is to be physically rooted in the things that you can walk to within five minutes. Do you know your neighbour? I, I, I make it weird. I smile at people that walk up and down my street when I pass them, especially older people, and I say good morning or good afternoon. Mm. And some of the older people, their faces light up because they've been sort of just acknowledged. The fact that I know that... The fact that you know the name of the person that runs the gym is brilliant. Yeah, his name's Ben Cush. Oh, ben, good on you, mate. It is... To, to, to have... Uh, Real connections, but also micro connections. So to say, I mean, I, I'm one of those people that says thank you when I get off the bus because I, I just do, I don't know, that's how I was brought up, you know, shout it to the driver type thing, is it's a real, I think, spiritual and emotional plus if you have that in your life as well as all the other things. I've got a map of where I live on my wall. It's, it's a painting from a friend. And it's really important to me that the local streets and park and people uh, on top of all the other things in my family in England and friends in America. So. Well, I think if you if we, if we think about this, you know, loneliness is possibly one of the, the greatest and saddest afflictions in the world. You know, there are many, many, many lonely people. I don't mean alone, living singly, but actually lonely. Yeah. And that idea that you can draw connection and intimacy and friendship from other sources rather than just your significant other, if you have one, is a beautiful idea and it's an ancient idea and it's what we're here for. We're social beings. So I totally agree with you. 
We're moving to uh, the last and fifth choice on Five My Life. And I need to get this right because it's quite a long description. So, uh, David Laser, you have chosen as your possession on Five My Life a Middle Eastern ring given to me by my younger daughter, Hannah, who bought it in East Jerusalem. Could you describe it and tell us why? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, sh- ah. I'm showing it to you here and it's, it's, it's kind of black crystal just set in copper and brass. And it, it, it's a kind of vintage Middle Eastern ring. And I just love the look of it. But again, it's context. It, it's, I took my daughters, Jordan and Hannah, to Jerusalem uh, and the West Bank and to Israel for Christmas three years ago. And I have a degree in Middle East politics. I've been a Middle East you know, kind of reporter. I've spent years grappling with that unholy conflict and making friends on both sides. And uh, I remember, you know, when, when Jordan, my elder daughter, was, you know, in 1994, 1994, when Rabin and Arafat were shaking hands on the White House lawn and it looked like there was going to be peace. And I just burst into tears and, and Jordan turned to her mother and said, Mummy, why is Dad crying? And uh, she said, because they're making peace in the Middle East, you know. And so for me, it was like this ongoing epic saga but one of, of great sorrow and bloodshed and intractability. And I'd banged on about this conflict and aspects of it for years and years and years. And then finally I get to take my, both my daughters to that region for Christmas. And we, we had a Christian Christmas because they're half Jewish in Jerusalem. And we went to Bethlehem and we went to a refugee camp in the West Bank and we went to one of the worst places on the planet, which is Hebron, where the Palestinians are basically um, surrounded by Jewish settlers and soldiers. And, you know, I mean, the, the conflict rages on, as, we know, as anyone who reads the papers knows. But we stayed in this beautiful hotel, my favourite hotel in the world, which is called the American Colony Hotel. And it used to be a Turkish Pasha's residence. And then it was owned by the Ustinov family, as in the actor Peter Ustinov. But it's this beautiful hotel in East Jerusalem, in the Arab part of Jerusalem. And it's marble and terrazzo and fountains and greenery. And and you hear the call of the minaret five times a day. And it's just near the Damascus Gate. And there's this little shop just across the way from the hotel. And Hannah, my younger daughter, just wanted to thank me for taking her to this area and she bought me this ring and so i i wear it all the time except when i'm in in the water and uh i love it and it's not a it's not priceless but it is priceless (laughs) yeah uh, wonderful wonderful Mm. do you feel uh, i mean i i I spent a couple of years in israel It, it seems to me we're going backwards not forwards in terms of there being a a happy i mean some problems haven't got a solution am i am i missing progress is there stuff is it getting better or worse well i think it's getting worse and yeah. um i mean you're the optimist in this conversation yeah. and, and i still uh, think it's getting worse yeah, yeah i think it's getting worse and i think the new government is like nothing we've ever seen and things were bad enough before this new government was um sworn in but um netanyahu's cobbled together a coalition which includes absolute gangsters and hooligans people you wouldn't allow in aisle 11 of Woolworths and they're running the show. So I think there's great unrest amongst Jews in Israel, let alone 
what the Palestinians are still being subjected to 55 years later. You know, the occupation is 55 or 56 years old. I think that's right, isn't it? 1967 till now. So as a Jew, uh, as a secular Jew, the idea that that the most persecuted people on earth historically could end up being persecutors of a subject people um, just breaks my heart. And and it is a hideously complex conflict. And the more you know about it, the more you know you don't know. It's been just wonderful chatting to you, mate. I mean, that I've got pages and pages of notes and questions, none of which I have asked. So, I mean, which is, which is a desire. I was going to ask about the Beatles because I know you're a Beatles nut. Um, so I'm going to ask you two more questions that are yeah. completely different to what we've just been talking about. One of them is my standard question, but one is because, like, sod it. I wrote all these questions, so at least I'm going to use one of them. Uh, you did some amazing work with Mr. Kelly. Uh, tell us about that relationship. Paul, not Ned. Yeah, so... Um I was the executive producer, one of the two executive producers, along with Toby Creswell, the, the renowned music journalist, on the documentary that was directed by Ian Darling of Paul Kelly called Paul Kelly, Stories of Me. Spent two years on that. He's my favourite singer-songwriter in Australia. I think he's, with, to me, indisputably the best songwriter this country has produced. And we so we made a documentary on on his on his life and music, and I had so much fun because I learned to play. I play guitar a bit and sing, and you know I was crooning Kelly songs, you know, on my veranda at night, and uh, and then by day interviewing him and his sisters and his brothers and his cousins and his former wives, and you know I had a I had a great time doing that. He's an amazing talent. I've seen some of his performances. Just electric. Just yeah. fantastic. Yeah, no, he's he's a great troubadour and balladeer and um, and one of the most well-read people I've ever met in my life. I mean, he's read all of Chaucer and all of Shakespeare and the Bible ten times over and French classics and Russian, German and English. I mean, he's just so well-read. It's remarkable. And he begs, borrows and steals from all of these sources for his songs. Didn't he recently uh, release an anthology of poems? Didn't he? His fifty poems that touched him, or something. He, he, a very he may he man. may well have. I I don't know. Um, anyway, and th- this is not a lame setup to my sixth question. I, I genuinely wanted to ask you about Paul Kelly. Uh, who would you like to hear on Five My Life next, and why? Well, I'd like I'd like to hear Andrew Denton. Ah, uh, okay. He's um, he's a good friend. He has a brilliant mind. He has a big heart. Um, he's probably in my view the one of the funniest quickest athletic minds in the country and uh, but he's also as we have seen with his work on go gently on his work uh, to change the laws around euthanasia he has put his his personal credibility and currency on the line for something much much bigger than himself i think he's um a truly great Australian and he's a he's a wonderful friend and godfather to my children actually I I would love to hear his five and and I am I mean I'm an enormous supporter of his work so um David Laser thank you so much for coming on five of my life thank you so much for having me Nigel 
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.